You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. This week, we are bringing back my interview with the comedy legend, Eddie Murphy. It's incredible to reckon with the legacy that Eddie has created. I had the album Raw. I was obsessed with him on SNL. I saw all of his movies. All of that early stuff really landed on me. It is one of my favorite interviews because it is so special because he rarely gives them. We did a photo shoot with him for Q, shot by Mark Seliger. The last time Eddie sat for a magazine cover, I think really a photo shoot, was 15 years earlier. And we captured Eddie just in his home. And then when it came time for us to record the podcast, we went in his screening room. And what was so surreal is to sit there with Eddie Murphy drinking his apple snapple and for us just to have a conversation for almost an hour and a half. He was about to like, you know, do Dolomite and then maybe go back on SNL, go on the road, do Coming to America, reboot some of those franchises. So I was really catching him on his re-entry and it was a really nice moment to talk about the future while weaving in what had happened in the past. I began by asking him about his legacy and what Chris Rock had to say about him, which I'm going to paraphrase here, but essentially he said, if he hadn't seen Eddie Murphy on SNL, he'd just be a funny UPS driver in Queens. Is that what he said? Mm -hmm. He said that you changed the way you did things that no one had ever seen any African-American actor do on screen or on stage. That's what Chris said? Mm -hmm. That's very nice of him. Are you you asking me that? I'm just asking you, just when you think about do you ever think about it, your career in terms of that, like all the things you did? And and I think about it in watching Trading Places that I watched so many times in 48 hours, is you look at those movies and sometimes when we go back, in retrospect, a lot of things are, you know, you're like, oh, we live in such a different time now in terms of some of the profanity and the slurs that were used then. But what made you so incredible in those parts is like you turn the tables. You were in control in a basically an all-white world, especially in 48 hours. And then in Trading Places, it just, it's still, it's like my Gone with the Wind. It's still one of my top favorite movies of all time. Yeah, you know, but you, you don't set out to, to be those things. Providence kind of just made those things happen. It was like, uh, the movie business was like, they they see it a certain way, and then every couple of years, something will happen, and they'll go, oh, you can make movies like that? Oh, oh they'll go see that? Like uh, when James Dean first came on the scene. Mm. The, before James Dean, all the movies used to be about grown-ups, and uh, all the themes were about grown-ups and what grown-ups were going through. And and, uh, and James Dean was the first one that, you know, the, the teen, was moved by, movies about teenagers and teenage angst and all that. He's the one that made the filmmakers. Oh, you can make movies about young people and they'll go see him? And it just opened up this whole thing. Well, with, with African-Americans, it was like, with the exception of the black exploitation era when it was this bum rush of stuff, it was like kind of like one at a time, one black person at a time mm-hmm. was getting on screen. It was always grown-ups. And it was always a certain type of character that you were playing as sidekick or a, a buddy or something. And uh, then I show up and uh, I'm casted as a buddy in the sidekick in 48 hours. But 
I'm kind of like the catalyst. It's like I'm the on. If you look at it, I'm the buddy. But if you listen to what's happening in the movies, mm-hmm. like we're what's our next move, convict? Mm-hmm. Now where do we go? <laughs> now tell me what we gotta do. Now what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like I'm go. Let's go over here and do that. Let's go. So I'm kind of like the first uh, African American actor to be in movies where I, I go into the white world and take charge mm-hmm. and be funny in it. You no, know? so that that was a mm-hmm. uh, and that opened up. You know the door for this. You know every everything that followed afterwards. From you know everything from Morgan and Denzel mm-hmm. and Wesley and mm-hmm. and and whoever mm-hmm. all came after that. That was all just it opened up all of that. How did you learn to deal with that pressure of being Mister Box Office and delivering things and kind of being the Joan of Arc in a way of of. Uh, you know, forging the path for yeah, different kinds felt, of movies. I never felt like I was forging a path. I was just being who I was, and I was, you know, I was reacting to. I was whatever, whatever came, whatever blew my way. You know, I just adapted to it. I, that what's that little uh, Forrest Gump that that uh, feather that's floating? Mm-hmm. That's who I was. I was that guy. I was that. You know, whichever way the wind blew me, you know. Like, that's why I said I didn't set out to do any of those things. It was providence. It was, I didn't set out to do any of that. It was, I got put into a situation and I did what I had to do in the situation and it turned into whatever. So when I was in the middle of it, I didn't feel like I was opening any door or I was being mm-hmm. groundbreaking or anything. It's when you get back, you know, years afterwards and you look back on it and be like, wow, you know. Same with stand-up. It's like, when I started doing stand-up comedy, there's like 10 black comics in the whole country, you know? And it might be 40 comics in the whole country when I started doing stand-up. And uh, after my success in stand-up, it kind of opened up the, like, stand-up stopped being this fringe thing. It became this mainstream, you know, stand-up comics now that can go sell out the garden that you never even, guys that never had TV show or never been in a movie Mm -hmm and sell a garden out. And it kind of like that whole thing started after after my stand-up stuff. And with movies, it was this big ocean of, of, of black talent, you know, that all started after, you know, my stuff. And I, looking back on it, I see it. But when I was in the middle of it, you know, you just trying to be funny. And so successful. I mean, those movies are so successful. And, and I do want to ask about the characters because you had done that where, you know, no modern, no one had seen that before. And I want to know what your inspiration was for being able to play multiple characters in a movie. And what you did with the Nutty Professor, I think, is unprecedented. We've really never seen that. I know in the past people would. Well, I love I love Peter Sellers and Peter Sellers does great characters. And uh, I loved that. Doctor Strange Love. He did multiple characters mm-hmm. in that. I'd seen that. It was a movie uh, with Alec Guinness called Kind Hearts and Carnets that I had seen. And Richard Pryor did a movie called Which Way Is Up, where he played multiple characters. So I always liked, you know, I was when I got the opportunity to do something like that. I had mm-hmm. ideas like that because there were movies like that that I had seen. You know, interestingly enough, the very first thing that I ever tried to do. Uh, was a, I had a <laughs> when I was a kid, about ten out nine. I asked my mother, 
to get me a ventriloquist dummy for Christmas. Mm -hmm. And the very first thing I ever try to do is be a a ventriloquist. And it's like, even from the very beginning, I'm trying to do to be more than one person. It's like, I got this voice coming out of here. (laughs) Yes, I've always... uh, I've I've gravitated toward that stuff, the multiple character stuff and the makeup stuff. So I always mm-hmm. liked makeup movies when I was a kid. I liked the Planet of the Apes and and Hunchback of Notre Dame and all that stuff, Notre Dame. And I, so when I got the opportunity, I had a lot of ideas for that kind of stuff. And then I found when I started doing it, the reason I did, I've done so much of it was because it kind of it frees you up. It's like you know, everybody has their little moves. You know, all actors have their little moves that they do, or they hit it a certain way, and the audiences get this used to seeing you do it a certain way, and you have your little moves. And after a while, you know, it's like you just have these moves. And when you put the makeup on, you can't do your moves. So you can't do those. You're this old lady, or you're this old Jewish guy. Or you're this, you know, obese professor. So you have to come up with different ways to be funny. And it, it kind of, it, it was fun for me as an actor. Like this Rudy Ray Moore thing was, uh, okay, now you're playing a comedian. So you got your moves that you do. You can't do your Eddie Murphy funny moves or your little thing. <laughs> you can't do any of that stuff. You can't do a funny laugh. or You have to be funny like Rudy Ray Moore. And that was the challenge as an actor. Like, okay, I got to. Do his this move has to be funny, but you can't be you be got to be funny like him being funny. Tell me about getting this movie to the screen and why you wanted to make sure everyone knew who Rudy Ray Moore was. I thought his he his his story would make a great movie, and uh, maybe fifteen sixteen years ago when he was alive, I I went to go see him at a place called Stevie's on the Strip in Ventura Boulevard in Studio City. And uh, he wanted to go on tour. I was like, you know, I think your movie, your life would make a great movie. He was like, man, we should go on tour together. And I was like, oh, no, no. <laughs> I said, I haven't done stand-up. And back then I was 10 years, at 15. I said, I don't have an act. You don't need no act, man. We just go out there and do our thing. <laughs> and, uh, and to make a movie, he wanted to, uh, just to have a meeting about a movie, he wanted somebody to give him a million dollars. That's why it never came together back then. Because I thought it was a great idea for a movie, but I wasn't giving him no million dollars just to sit down and write mm-hmm. a script. But then, you know, time went on. And uh, back then, I we approached, because uh, I was like, you get those guys that wrote Ed Wood, you know, because I love that movie, Ed Wood. I was like, get them, because it's a story like that, you know, about how he made these movies. Because his, his story is really, you know, the guerrilla filmmaker, uh, Rudy Ray Moore. He, he made it, he, he, he financed his movies himself. You know, and he, and he and he did everything out of his pocket and he casted his movie and went and got it distributed and all that. He did all that stuff himself, you know, way back in the 70s because he couldn't get into the to the when the big black exploitation wave was going on. He was like the underground for that. They were like that those guys were turning their nose up to, up to Rudy's stuff. So he had to do it, you know, the hard way. That was a great scene in the movie when you have him go in with the posters and he's like trying to fit in and he still, still yeah, didn't make yeah, it. Yeah, he was too, he was too doughy. <laughs> but yeah, his story is a great inspirational story about uh, the most important ingredient, you know, when being creative is believing in yourself, you know. And it's, his is a story about, the, like, he's not... Richard Pryor, he's not the most brilliant one. He's he's just believes in himself, like a 
I, like I, I say, he's the, he's the loser who would not lose. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he refused to lose. Well, there's also elements in the film that were very much like the American dream. Like he was a true entrepreneur. Absolutely. Like you, I was thinking about that. Like how you know, you would look at this from a different lens and you're like, that guy, that's not just hustle. He was entrepreneurial. When he thought about putting that devil sticker on that first album about, like, he was a marketer knowing that people are going to want something that someone's telling them they can't have and just wrapping it up. I thought that was so interesting about him. And it's just such a shame that I never would have known about him unless you would have made this movie. Yeah, and those, you know, in in the African-American community, uh, his uh, the older people, you know, forty and up, they kind of grow up. Those poems, those uh, Dolomite poems, and the signified monkey, and way down in the jungle deep. Those were kind of like things that you kind of grew up hearing around the neighborhood. You know, like old, like he, you see, when he got those jokes from some hobos or some some bums in the alley. So that's the black folks have always loved to rhyme. You know. So even before hip hop, they were they was rhyme. We were rhyming. You know, you know, the first person I heard rhyming was Ali. I think all of this stuff started from Ali. Muhammad Ali was the first person I heard rhyming about how bad and how cool he was and all like Dolomite is his, what he's saying is just as audacious as Ali's. I'm the greatest mm-hmm. of all times and I'm this and I'm that and I and I drown a glass of water and all all the different type of things Ali is saying he could do. Dolomite says that kind of stuff. I think and the hip hop is say all that kind of stuff as well. And I think the root of it all is Ali. Did you have it in your house playing? I, did your mom let you listen to it? Or was that something you guys were doing in the in the basement? Yeah, I had. Well, I had a, a, all the comedy records. So I had uh, uh, Red Fox and Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor mm. and Bill Cosby and, you know, Lord Buckley and Derek and Clive. Because I was a kind of, I started doing stand up when I was 15. So I had an interest in all this. I used to listen to everybody. And uh, and I was aware and listened to Rudy Ray Moore. Where'd your fearlessness come from at 15 to be able to just say, I'm going to go do this? I never even thought about it. You know, I look back on it now and I trip about how young I was, you know. And I mean, you have kids that age. Can you imagine your kids just like, that's it? You're going out, you're doing nah, it? Like, I was working bars and I was 15, 16. I was working bars. You know, and I didn't look at it as being fearless. I just wanted to get up there and be funny. Like once I heard Richard Pryor, I was kind of like, okay, that's who I am. Because I was always the funny kid and not not just the the class clown. I was never the class clown because I was always kind of cool. So I was like the cool guy in the back that would say some shit, you know, (laughs) perfect timing. And I can do impressions of everybody. But from really early on, I was like the, the funny kid. And uh, when I heard Richard Pryor, it was like, oh, okay, that's who I am. I'm, that's what I am. I'm that what that guy is. And that was 75, 76. So when I started getting on stage, it wasn't like I was, I didn't look at it as it just being a brave thing. I just wanted to get up there and, and be funny like Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. A lot of youth, youth yeah. and energy and yeah. just moving forward. That's why, that's why I wasn't a, that's why there's no fear. You know, when you're young, you don't know. You know, you just go and do it. You take everything for granted. Mm-hmm. You know, on SNL when I got on SNL, one of the reasons why uh, <clears throat> I got on SNL the first season 
that the original cast left and they brought in a bunch of new people the first time they did that. And they hated it. They hated the show and all the critics mm-hmm. hated it and the people rejected the show and it was horrible. And, and they said, the, the one the one bright light on the show was that kid Eddie Murphy. And the reason I, I was a, a bright light was because I... The, the, I wasn't even caught up in how grim it was. The show. I was just so happy to be on TV, and I was just so happy to be fun. So that that came across. <laughs> that came across. I wasn't like, oh no, I'm on this horrible show that everybody hates. You know, I was right in the middle of that, but I was just so happy to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I could get, I was getting laughs. What's well, harder to be funny when you're scared or angry or you know bitter. Or, you could still do it, but it just doesn't come out the same as with, if you're like, you know, you, you, you're just happy to be there and you're feeling joy and you're excited about doing it. This movie, like I've been sitting on the couch the last couple of years, not doing anything because I was like, you know, I want to do something when I'm excited about doing it because you could see on the screen. I know I could see when I just did something to do something you know, to get a check or something, I could tell the difference between that and the stuff that I was excited about doing. And this was something I was trying to put together years ago. And when it came together and and the script that they put together, we, that we developed, it was just, I'm just excited about going to the set every day. And you could see it on, you could see it in the movie. What was the favorite part about going back into 70s LA? I never felt like I was going back to like I'm not like that up in my head. I'm, I know I'm on the movie set and it's all set and all that stuff. I never go all the way back like that. I could tell you the most unpleasant part about <laughs> doing the '70s is the outfits, the, how uncomfortable those clothes are. Mm-hmm. And I, those are the stuff. That's the stuff we was wearing when I was a teenager. I don't remember it being that uncomfortable. Like you wear some platform shoes now, and you in your '50s you put on a platform shoe. <laughs> You'd be like, well, they're kind of popular now. I've seen like Stella McCartney's coming back and those big giant yeah, tennis but you shoes. You don't see nobody. You don't see nobody in their fifties, and that's a young man. That's a young person's <laughs> shoe. You have to be in your, you know, in, no older than your thirties, or you know, your twenties, preferably, to get away with the platform shoe. If you and your fifty, I'm fifty. I just turned fifty-eight. If you fifty-eight mm-hmm. and you put on, well, I was fifty-seven when I made the movie, and you put on a platform shoe. You you would hear your foot from inside the shoe say, "Fuck this shoe." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I mean, I love the costumes were were just incredible, and all the bow ties. And what's so interesting about this film? I mean, you've done multiple characters, but in this, you're playing. Uh, one character, obviously Rudy, who becomes this stage persona of Dolomite. And it's interesting to see how the discovery of the wig and how just the tweaking of a different bow tie created this completely different alter ego. Yeah, for for Rudy, yeah, he went and made this dude up. And uh, I don't, I never heard of anybody that went in the alleyway with a tape recorder with the and, and tape recorded, you know, the the homeless people and and drunks and bums and recorded their stuff and shape that into it i mean you can can you can you can you bend down any lower <laughs> can you bend down any lower rudy <laughs> i don't know anybody that went down that low and came up with something you know and served it up that became you know this cult 
thing and became part of the culture. Those poems and the Dolomite and the signified monkey and all that, those poems became part of the culture. What do you hope an audience that that maybe didn't know who he was takes away from a movie like this, like the universal appeal of it? I think it's a really inspirational story about believing in yourself and seeing your dream, you know, going going for your dreams. And, and it, what's really cool about it, it's like... A, Usually, when the person is going for their dream, they have incredible talent, or you know, and you you got something that you want to, you want to, you know, you've got this great talent. Rudy's movies are horrible, and his stand-up is horrible, and it's like all this stuff that's horrible. But his spirit, and he believes in it so much that he makes it not. He makes it not. It's not hard. We just look at what he's what he's doing. If you looked at it on paper, you'd be like, "What the fuck?" But when you, if it's because it's him and how much he believes in it, he sells it to you. And it's it's like I said, we've been making a movie about him. It's forty years after he did those movies, so it's this great story about if you believe in yourself, that's the most important ingredient. You know, if we're talking about doing anything, if you could see it, you don't have to be the best and you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be, you know, incredible. You just have to believe in it, no matter what it is. And that that's a great universal story. And his commitment to it, it just is incredible. Like, he just does not stop. And why do you think those movies hit such a chord during that time? What about him that hit? Because you could see the mic in it, and it was sloppy. All of that, all of that. But the, that, the, first and foremost, they worked because they're they're funny, and uh, one of the, the the crudeness and and that was part of the appeal of the movie. When we were in the movie theater, we you know we we love that we see you know the microphone and and you see the you know it could, he missed that punch or mm-hmm. you know that that's one of the things that made the movie appealing. It was like the the rawness of it, you know. And we got into that. That would became part of the joke. <laughs> Look, you can see the fucking microphone. His <laughs> movies became like stoner movies. They didn't start out like that. They just started. They started out as, you know, just people couldn't believe what they were seeing, you know. And then in late seventies, early eighties, they became like the, the and the hip hoppers started watching them. They became these stoner movies, like. People smoke weed. It's one of those you had certain movies you smoke weed and watch them, and they're funnier because you smoked weed. It okay. became a picture of one of those movies, like you know, like a Fellini movie mm-hmm. or El Topo, or Alejandro Hodorowsky movie. You know, they became like that for me anyway. What's what's another one? Uh, uh, Putney Swope, Robert Downey Senior. Uh, it became one of those types of movies. You trip off it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It will look like you guys had a good time making it as well. And that comes across, like I said, the chemistry and the music and and just the first time you've ever played a real-life character. I mean, you've done a lot of impersonations of real-life characters. Yeah, this characters, is the first time but... I ever played an actual person. Yeah. And, you know, I had all of this stuff. I didn't have to look up any—because I was a fan, a, a genuine fan— and I have, I have all of his movies and I have all of his records and I have watched them for years and years. When this came together, I there wasn't I didn't have to look up anything. I didn't have to study his voice. I didn't have to do, I already did an impression of him. I was like, it just all just fell together. Yeah, and I was ready for it. it was mm-hmm. like, well, I think you're 
age brings the vulnerability to it too, which makes the performance so good. Oh, what you mean being a, a old fucker? Mm-hmm. Makes me uh, yeah, that brings Maybe. the vulner that brings the vulnerability to it. Mm-hmm. it absolutely Maybe. does. Are you happy you got off the couch to do it? Yeah, I'm I am. so happy to see you back on yeah, screen. Yeah, I am. I'm, I got off the couch, and I'm happy I got off the couch. And uh, I'm well. I'm getting ready to go do start a coming to America. Got off the since I got off the couch, it was like let me do some things that they want to see. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do that. And uh, I haven't been back to SNL in, in 35 years. I think I'm going to go host Saturday Night Live this year. Mm-hmm. And then next year I'm going to tour, do some stand up. Well, I have to say, and then then back to the yeah. couch. Back to the couch. Yeah, okay. after after that run. <laughs> Well, the Mark Twain speech was amazing. I just watched it on YouTube uh, when your acceptance speech for that. And it felt like I was like, wait a minute, this could be something he could take. This is like a little bit of a set here. And you had everybody. When you when you hear that laughing and you hear there, everyone was responding and it was so funny and, and I'm laughing just watching it on YouTube. How does that feel when you walk off that stage? Uh, that night, I was like, "Oh well, wow, okay, that's I could still do that because I, I didn't know what I was going to do. That was like, okay, you gotta have, you gotta say something. So like, you know, the night before that, I wrote something, my acceptance speech, and it was like, oh, you know, you could still. Nothing has changed except I just don't get up on the stage and do it. But the the process of sitting down and putting it together, and it's like, oh, I could still do that." And it had, been a, it had been a while since I had just talked like that and got laughs and was like, oh, whoa, well, I remember that. Oh, okay, it's cool. That's when I started thinking, maybe I should get on stage and do some stand-up again. But I was like, I don't want to just pop up out there and just come off the couch and just be out there doing stand-up. So I wanted to have a movie that, you know, something that was really, really funny, you know. And, and this was, when this, the way this came together was like, oh, and I could tour off that movie. I can I can show up out there being funny after that. Because this movie is, you know, it's inspirational and it's, you know, all of those things. But more than anything, it's really, really funny. Mm-hmm. What still surprises you about Hollywood now that you've been in the business for 30 years? What still surprises mm-hmm. me? You know, what in your experience, you know, is there something that you miss from the 80s and the 90s? Or is there something now that you're really enjoying that's kind of surprised you about about the business of show business? Well, it's not show business anymore. Show business is like uh, the the old days. You know, like I used to say, uh, it's from vaudeville. It's like the vaudeville had just little periods and it turns into show business was you singing and dancing and acting and, and you got to have some type of, you know, talent or some kind of thing or craft or something like that. Then, and, and marketing and distributing that stuff is show business. Not just in show business. The, the last 10 years or so, there's been it's a big paradigm shift in reality. And, you know, just in, all, in everything, everything has changed into this other thing. And it's, uh, it's, from, it's from the internet and all this different stuff. It turned it into, like, what's entertaining now? It's like, now you can have, like, YouTube, you can go on it literally and say, uh, uh, show me old men fighting. What is entertainment has been broadened over the last 
you know, 10 years and the world just shifted into a whole other place, you know. And I'm just, I'm happy to be around and see and still, you know, I, I come from I come from this world, but I, I'm in this world, you know. I'm happy to be here. Mm-hmm. There's so many of my, my contemporaries, uh, the people that came on the scene when I came on the scene are all dead. <laughs> so it's exciting to be here and see the big change and, and you know. Be part of it. Yeah. What about music and your music? How important is that to you? Well, that's, you know, that's what I still do that. I never stop. Uh, mm-hmm. I never stop, and it's this. That's all the same. This, this, whatever muscle I use to uh, be funny, I have you know a muscle I use to be to do music, and I use them both all the time. I'm always. I've never stopped doing music. I stopped putting it out though, because you know I, that weird look when actors put music out, and it kind of looks like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> what is this? What is this? It kind of some there's some kind of the the audience gets weirded out by it. And I didn't want to be, you know. I remember that Keanu Reeves had his band. Yeah, a lot of people. Yeah, have a bands. lot. Of, a lot of yeah. actors are musicians. I saw uh, uh, Johnny uh, Depp. Johnny Depp mm-hmm. just the other night with the the got the Hollywood vampires. I saw them. They sounded cool. But uh, yeah, a lot of people do music, but it's a uh, it weirds audiences out sometimes. So I wasn't doing it to get more famous or to have a hit record or something. I just do it because I did it. And and I've gotten my chops have gotten better, so I can play. And mm-hmm. you know, it was a I don't want to say it was a hobby because I was always into it. But I've been doing it for so long, and you know, I have a always have a studio wherever my house is, and I record a lot. That's what I do most when I'm on the couch. You know, I'm on the couch with a guitar and. Uh, and what I do mostly in my spare time is uh, music, record, write, and record stuff. And it just lives in its own Eddie Murphy library? Yeah, I've got like all types of songs and collaborations and s- stuff with people you would have <laughs> all different types of stuff from over the years, never released. I've been in a studio with everybody over the years. Everybody. And you never release it? All that stuff will come out, you know, one day. Mm-hmm. You know, a hundred years from now, when I'm gone, they'll find, they'll find all these tracks and they'll be like, wow, we didn't even know this guy. <laughs> we had no idea. You know, that's where, because in the movies or when I'm doing comedy, you know, that though, that's a character or a comic persona. You know, when, when you're doing music, it's kind of like, that's, for me, that's me. That's, uh, the things that I write about and all that stuff, it's me. Like you get insight to me listening to something that I wrote. You get no insight, you know, to me by watching me be uh, funny. You just go, oh, he's funny. But you don't know why. You won't learn who I am from that. And that's why it stays private. Yeah, it's intimate. And it's not, sir, I can't serve it up to you. Uh, the audience will have to sit through you know, two or three songs before I start telling jokes. How do you find the whole political correctness climate for stand-ups? A lot of them have gotten in trouble and end up apologizing and stuff. Does yeah. that give you any pause? No, because back when I was doing stand-up, 
I don't know if the the time was political correct. If it was per, the word political correctness hadn't come up yet, but I I had pick people picketing and talking shit mm-hmm. and getting. Mm-hmm. I went through all of that shit back then, you know. So that it was always like that. I know you gotta choose, pick your shots now. The stuff mm-hmm. that you say. You, you know. Do you have nerves at all about the idea of going back on on tour? Um, no nervous. You know, doing Anxious. doing no doing stand. The, I, the, when I think about doing stand up, it's this the, the the this is the perfect analogy. It's like if you go to the pool and you the waters, you go this is it goes the water cold. Somebody goes, oh, it's freezing, and you go, oh, you got and you go oh, before you jump in, and you go, oh, the water's fucking cold. That that's how I feel with stand up. It's like I need. It's like oh, that feeling. Uh, Ooh, it's going to be freezing when I first get in. But then, you know, that feeling just before you jump in the pool. That's not nervous or scared. That's just, you know, I know the water's cold. (laughs) (laughs) And you'll get used to it. Yeah, you get used to it once you get in. You get used to it. Do you think they'll ever be able to talk you into doing the Oscars? I know you almost you had like a false start a couple of years ago with everything. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you think I've you'd been, ever host I've it been, again? I've been to the Oscars uh, two or three times uh, mm-hmm. uh, since that thing where I almost hosted, and I gave uh, Jerry Lewis. They gave him a honorary Oscar. I presented the Oscar to him, so I've been there, and I don't have any problems with doing the Oscars. It just has to the timing has to be right and. Everything has to be, you know, so where it's a, a fun experience and not something that traumatizes you. Because it's a pretty thankless thing, mm-hmm. you know. Kind of like you got to do it and just just be happy that you're doing it because it's a big, it's an honorable thing. You know, it's a high honor to be able to host that. And, mm-hmm. you know, but, but it's kind of like, you know, no matter how good you do, you, people talk shit about it. And you don't get paid no money to do it. It's kind of, <laughs> you know, it's like... So you gotta just want to do it for yourself. Mm-hmm. I hope you do. I hope it. I hope maybe in maybe twenty twenty one. We'll see. You know, one day. One day, right? So you dedicate this movie to your brother, and I know family's always been so important to you, and even in the early stand up, the stories of of your family or your family adjacent and grandmother and all of that stuff. What do you want people to know about your brother that never got oh, to meet him? Well, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's why we did the dedication. So we're trying to get people to learn something. That's no, more, that's more, for, that's more for the it. people that knew about him, that knew about mm-hmm. him. And, you know, and he's the first person that told me about Rudy Ray Moore. And, and he was a comedian. And this is the first thing I've done in so long that was funny and you know I loved my brother and missed him so that's why mm-hmm. I put you know we dedicated it to him you know he's connected put his name on connect his name to something that's you know I'm, that I know is going to be making people laugh mm-hmm. and he made so many people laugh when he was here mm-hmm. you know. do you think you have another generation of actors coming up in, in your family yeah, uh, my daughter Bella, she's gonna play one of the and uh, coming to America with one of the princesses is uh, my my daughter's gonna play one of the princesses and my older daughter, my oldest daughter Bria, she's an actress. Oh, she is. Yeah, and my son Miles, he's 
Miles, My, Christian, and Eric all write and act. So yeah, eventually you'll be seeing them. But I don't know if they're funny like me. They're all like handsome and you know, <laughs> cool and all that stuff. You do have a gorgeous family. Yeah, I can they're, tell. They're Look like at those pictures. Beautiful. It's not they're, fair. They're, they're like, not. They're not. I mean, they're funny, but I don't know if they're they're thinking about being funny. They're just funny, like family funny stuff. Mm-hmm. They make you laugh. Oh yeah, the kids are nonstop. You have kids? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're nonstop. Mm-hmm. Hilarity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you sentimental? Uh, yeah, I guess I I can be sentimental, but I don't miss. I don't pine for or miss the past. So I have a little small circle of friends that you know been friends for you know, forty years. I have a couple of people like that. Mm-hmm. And I have a really small social circle. Do you look forward to things? Are you looking forward to going on SNL? Or are you looking forward to? Honestly, I look for. I look. I don't like to do anything as much as I like to sit on the couch. <laughs> yeah. Everything. What are you watching when you're on the couch? Just what every. Just I've been watching, and sometimes I'm playing with my kids, or I'm watching TV, or I'm playing just or just sitting there. With me and Paige. Do you get dressed there. every morning to sit on the couch? Do you have like a routine that you do? Uh, no, no, I have a routine to sit on the couch. <laughs> yeah, but the but for me the best the best time is when there's uh, there's no, nothing scheduled and there's nothing to do and, mm-hmm. and I have nothing planned and I don't have to be anywhere and. My kids are around. I can hear them in the distance or see them. Everybody's around, and it's kind of no, no schedule, and that that's the best for me. Let's just so that's what I look forward to. If you get some rest, you know, when you come back to work, or when it's time to go do what you do, you do it better, you know. So I'm all, I'm all. My battery. Are you rested? Oh yeah, my battery's charged and 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 inspired. This thing, like this Rudy Ray Moore movie, kind of lit a, a spark under me because you know you sitting there with an audience and you see the audience laughing and it's like yeah yeah oh yeah that's what I do and yeah okay yeah it's funny you want to do that I want to do something else to make it I got them laughing I want to do something else while I got them laughing to do something else you know and Saturday Night Live. Like I said, I hadn't been back there since, you know, 35 years ago. And I want to tour next year. So I kind of like, this is the perfect. The, and the, even the Coming to America movie, this is like, mm-hmm. I'm kind of bookending, bookending. Like, I didn't want the, the, if I never make another movie again, I didn't want the last movie I did to be something that wasn't funny. The last movie I did was uh, uh, about a, a guy that, takes care of this woman who's dying of cancer like a mm-hmm. serious Mr. Church. yeah Mr. Church it was like a That's serious a good character movie. Yeah. yeah and I didn't want to leave it I didn't want to leave I love that movie but I didn't want to leave it there because I'm I'm the fuck you man I'm the funny guy so I wanted to do something really really funny you know you have such power though even when you're not funny even when you're silent you have a lot of power on screen yeah, but people come to see me to be to That's laugh. Right. Though they're not coming for me to be silent. You know, he sure is powerful up there, not talking. But I wish he's. I wish he say something funny. <laughs> no how, one is funny. Look how, look no how powerful. Look how powerful he is making those eggs. He could just make eggs and hold your attention. But I sure wish this motherfucker say something funny. God damn. 
<laughs> no one's funnier than Eddie Murphy, but Eddie Murphy should be allowed to make eggs in silence too if he wants to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, people, the people that are checking for me, and I'm I'm not mad at it. If you, they're checking for me because I've made them laugh, and and so you know they want to so I want to serve something up funny. I don't think there's any higher calling for an artist. There's nothing that can. There's nothing that can be compared to being. You make people laugh. To make people laugh, I know I'll take laughter over any type of entertainment. Over you want to go see a tearjerker, or you want to mm-hmm. dance at a, a party, whatever, whatever. Uh, you want to see some romance, so you or you want to laugh. Y'all want to? You would rather laugh over anything, you know. And to have that—that's a like a precious gift, you know. So. I have thoroughly enjoyed hanging out with you and talking mm-hmm. to you. Cool. I've always been a big fan, so um, I can't wait for everybody to see Dolomite. So we got all we got all the important stuff. I'm I'm the funniest man in the world. Mm-hmm. I started it all. Mm-hmm. I opened the doors for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and don't don't start no shit. Mm-hmm. That's that's basically that's everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com. 